Welcome to the Self-Fellowship Church Podcast. Here at Self-Fellowship, we exist to help people live in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus. Wherever you're listening from today, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Good morning, friends. How are you doing today? Great to see you, friends here, friends at home, online. It's great to have you with us as well. For the last time, we're going to jump into our series, Build a Bigger Table. That means that's the last time you'll get that catchy little tune and get to watch the donuts spin around. Um, and you know, it's, you'll, you'll be okay. Teresa, I loved your shameless plug in the announcements. That could be our new selling point to get people to do announcements. If you get up there, you can plug anything you want. It's a sales tactic. We are jumping into Luke 24. What I'll do is I'll read uh, some of what we looked at last week. Last week, we followed two of Jesus' earliest followers on what's called the road to Emmaus. They left Jerusalem, got out of town, perhaps panicked when Jesus was uh, arrested and executed, and Jesus tracks them down. He reveals reveals himself to them during the course of this meal and the breaking of bread. And this passage follows on closely to that. So let's just continue from Luke 24, 33, if you've got a text in front of you. This is the New International Version. Any version that you have is just as good. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together, saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. The Lord has risen. What an incredible statement. Then the two who told them what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Verse 36, this is our text for today. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. They were terrified, startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Let's pray together, friends. God, as we open this book that you have given us, we believe that you speak to us. In the midst of our needs, in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our successes, in the midst of not being enough, You reach out, we thank you for this story that it is is expansive and rich and deep and undergirds everything about this world. For those of us that need to see this story in a new way, would you show it to us? For those of us that need to be reminded of our role within the story, would you remind us and challenge us? Would you afflict the comfortable? Would you comfort the afflicted? And would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. So, 
We meet these disciples again in this moment where Jesus has died. The worst has happened. They are unsure what to do. Some of them have fled. Some of them have locked themselves in a room and they're left with this tension point of, well, what, what do we do now? What's the next thing for this story? What, what are our hopes and dreams? Do we run? Do we believe that the Romans won't come after us after they came after our leader and killed him? Where does the story go here? There is nothing particularly about what these earliest followers of Jesus do that suggests they are full of faith and full of hope for a good end to this story. For the most part, it seems like what we are seeing here is just some kind of panic. And yet this moment we're about to read is the pivot point around which the whole story will turn. This is the moment that decides, will the story stop here or will the story go somewhere else? This is the moment that decides what role you and I play in this story and where the story goes in our own individual lives. This is the moment where Jesus appears to his disciples and he sets the scene for everything that will come in the future. For those of you that can track back to the beginning of the series, we talked about how as a community we're going to wrestle with this book, Luke, this narrative, this biography of Jesus' life, this gospel or glad tidings, good news. And then we're gonna move on to this book, Acts. The first is what Jesus did. The second book, second part of the series, if you will, is, is really about what his followers did. That incredibly includes you and I. We are invited in to that big story, but it all begins here. This is the pivot point around which everything builds. But my question for you, I'd love us to start out with is this. How would you rate the statement, seeing is believing? Would you say that that statement is largely true? Would you agree with that? Or would you question whether seeing is truly believing? It's a fairly well-known statement. If you see something, I want to see evidence of it. I want to see and then I'll believe is what people might tell you. And yet, I wonder if seeing is believing. Occasionally, we have moments where we experience something that we say, I, I'm not sure if my eyes were telling me the truth. I'm not sure if I really saw what I think I saw a few weeks ago. I and some of the staff at South were in downtown Littleton. We were doing a scavenger hunt, little team building. And in the midst of that, as we were walking through one of the parks, we heard a groaning and then a large crack and then a bang. And as we turned to look where it came from, in the distance, we saw this scene in one of the parking lots. We went dashing over, as you might imagine. I ran into the parking lot and yelled something like, does anybody need help? I'm a pastor. <laughs> Obviously failing to recognize that to most people, I brought no discernible skill or ability to this troubling situation. We found the lady who had parked her car just a couple of minutes before and then was sat in the pavilion next to it as this huge cottonwood came landing on a car, crushing the seat that she had been sitting in just a few seconds before. I ran up to her and I said, you know, again, I'm a pastor. Apparently I thought a second try might work uh, and said, is there anything that you need? And she said, I could really use a liquor store, uh, which was... <laughs> She said, if you have a fifth of scotch, that would be great. I was like, I don't. And I'm with staff, so if I did, I wouldn't be allowed to tell you. But there was this moment where you look at this scene and you're like, wow, did this really happen? Is this, and for the lady, wow, the profundity of, man, I was sat there just a few minutes ago. Am I really seeing what I think I saw. Maybe that's true of scenarios like this. Maybe it's true of just being out in nature. Some of you have been exploring and you've stopped for a moment and you've seen a scene that is just stunning. And he said, wow, am I really seeing this? 
can this be real? This is Stanage Edge, where my wife and I got engaged. At the time, it was so cloudy and misty, you couldn't actually see the edge. Um, but it was still wonderful. We got engaged, and that was wonderful. But this is this English countryside, and I couldn't resist sharing this with you. So bear with me for just a second. This is the English countryside at its best. And I'm just in the middle of reading this book called The Remains of a Day by a Japanese author called, called Katsu Ishiguro. And this is what he says about the English countryside. I just, I just couldn't resist. Here we go. And yet, what precisely is this greatness? He talks about how we call the country Great Britain. What is so great about it? If I were forced to hazard a guess, I would say that it's the very lack of obvious drama or spectacle that sets the beauty of our land apart. What is pertinent is the calmness of that beauty, its sense of restraint. It is as though the land knows of its own beauty, of its own greatness, and feels no need to shout about it. In comparison, the sorts of sights offered in such places as America, though undoubtedly very exciting, would, I'm sure, strike the objective viewer as inferior in account of their unseemly demonstrativeness. <laughs> So, if you've been looking for a new adjective for the Rocky Mountains, unseemly demonstrativeness is apparently that new adjective. Rocky Mountains, home to unseemly demonstrativeness. <laughs> Couldn't resist. There's these moments where we see scenes and we're like, wow, it's just so beautiful. Maybe you've stood up. I stood on Genesee, in Genesee Park on one of the summits and just looking at just the beauty in front of me. And I know that there's so much more to explore. There is just something about natural beauty that grasps hold of us. And we say, am I really seeing this? And how about one more? There's this story or rumor of mirage. This is something, a phenomenon called Feta Morgana. It's something that happens with the ocean and the way that the, the heat works, that it makes things that are beyond the horizon look like they're floating above the horizon. It's legends like this that have given rise to stories like the Flying Dutchman, a pirate ship that can float above the seas and can attack pirate, other ships at whim. Here's another one of an oil tanker apparently just suspended in midair. Of course, it's not real, and we know it's real. And yet our eyes tell us that we're seeing something spectacular. Seeing is believing to a certain extent is true, and yet we know time and time again, one, our eyes can mislead us, and two, we'll question what we're seeing. And then think about that in the context of these followers of Jesus who a couple of days after his death, a couple of days after the worst day, are now stood there, and it seems like Jesus has appeared in their midst. What is happening here? Can they believe this? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. This is our Emmaus friends again. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and say, saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. There is this rumor of resurrection. These stories are starting to build. Some of the women have seen him. Peter has seen him. These two on the road to Emmaus have seen him. And now these 11 and their other followers have seen him. And yet the question still lurks under the scene. Yes, they have seen him, but what does this mean? What would resurrection mean? And on what terms has it happened? What, what even is resurrection? In the first century, there was a fairly robust debate about what the afterlife looked like. To some people, it was a nothingness. It was a resting in peace. To some people, it was an ethereal one day in some distant place. We will all be together on a spiritual level. And yet for some, there was a suggestion that real physical resurrection might be a thing. 
And so we watch here as Jesus does something very specific with his earliest followers. It seems like he demonstrates to them what resurrection isn't, then what resurrection is, and then what it means for them as individuals, as a group. He's about to pull them into this story. He's about to unleash them in a new particular way. And and not just them, I would suggest, but you and I as well. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Isn't that just what you want to hear when your friend who was dead suddenly stands in your midst? Imagine the very real terror for some of them. And yet Jesus comes and says, peace. The Hebrew word for peace would have been shalom. And this idea of shalom in this book, Luke, is very linked to the idea of salvation, of rescue. Jesus essentially stands amongst his followers and says, don't worry, I'm here with some good news. I'm here to rescue. I'm here to bring you into something. I'm here to bring you from your lowest point into something new, into a new story for you and the rest of the world. This message of peace is this important grounding for the text, but but it's not enough for them, at least on the surface. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. This is one of the first potential errors that we could fall into about what exactly Jesus' resurrection was. He's just a spirit. He's just here as some kind of ghostly figure that belongs now to a distant world. This is the disciples' first reaction, and it's probably understandable, but it seems like Jesus is particularly keen to let them know that this isn't what he means by resurrection. It's not what's happening to him, and it's not what he's promising them either. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Jesus wants them to know that resurrection is physical. It is practical. It is do you have enough to eat? It is broiled fish. It is an ability to touch. It is still rooted in so many of the physical things we think about this world. And yet it's not that he's just a dead body come back to life only to die again. We've had this popularity right over the last maybe five, ten years of zombie movies, zombie TV series. And there's a potential that the disciples could fall into this error about this as well, that he's just a dead body who's been resuscitated. And yet that's not what he's talking about either. Jesus is talking about something very particular. He has this resurrection life that is both physical And yet it's also different from the everyday physical that you and I live. He appears through locked doors. He can change his physical physical appearance. And when the later writers on Christianity started to sketch out what you and I might hope for in terms of resurrection, they start to talk about things like, you will have a resurrection body like his. Your corruptible will take on incorruptible. It is, yes, physical, but a different kind of physicality to the one we experience right now. No more of the deterioration that I just experienced for the first time really in my life just a couple of weeks ago, that sudden sense of something isn't working in this body the way that it's supposed to work. And what does that mean? And how long can this body hold up? Every one of us will experience or has experienced that And Jesus offers a physicality free from that. Resurrection is about new life. 
It is about practical, physical things, and yet it is beyond any quality that we can experience. Now, he is very keen to make sure that they know he is not a ghost and he is not just a body raised from the dead. He is living in a new resurrection way that is particular and distinct, and they are invited into that as well. This is the extent of this good news that we're talking about. They still did not believe it because of joy and amazement. Isn't it fascinating that this group of people, seeing is not enough for them. They see and they question, are you a ghost? Are you maybe a raised body? What, what exactly is happening here? But touching isn't enough either. They watch as he touches these physical things in front of them, the bread and the, the, the fish, he takes it and he eats it. They are given the opportunity to touch the nail marks that are still present in his hands, but that isn't enough either. Even this offer of visual touching, tactile, it's still not enough for them to believe that this good news is really true. Seeing is not enough for them. Touching is not enough for them. They need something more. Jesus intentionally provides counterproof to two possible misunderstandings of his resurrection. He's not just a ghost. He's not just a raised dead body. He is living a new resurrection life that you and I are invited into as well. But for these followers of his... That's a stretch. How can they possibly re-up? How can they anti-up again? How can they register faith again when they have followed this Jesus all through his incredible teaching? They have lived with him for years. They have watched as he's done incredible things. And now they're being asked to believe again after hitting the lowest point, after the worst case scenario, after the death that they didn't see coming. And now Jesus stands in front of them and says, there is a new story to come from this. His followers have constantly wrestled with this part of his story. They've never quite understood what it means for him to die. Every time he's suggested it, it's been met with responses by people like Peter, where he said things like, no, 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 Lord, this will never happen to you. You can't possibly die. Their best case scenario is that Jesus is around forever. They've done some great things together. People have been healed. There's a chance that they may even overthrow this Roman Empire. There is always, these are the stories that they hope for. The story that they actually get, in spite of being better, is not one that they easily come to believe. And especially when it comes to their part in it. So we've seen them, they've seen, they've touched, but something more is required. What does Jesus say to them? He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Within Christian theology, dogmatics, there has been this constant conversation as to who starts the spiritual journey or who puts in most of the work. Some people have said it's a human process of us investigating and getting to know the God of the universe. Others have said it is simply about what God does. God has to reveal to you himself and you are just a, a, a non-player. You don't get to make a decision and yet different parts of the Bible will express different parts of those tensions. And what it seems to be is it's the combination of the two. Ultimately, there has to be some moment where God makes himself real to you and I. There is some moment where maybe the language you've grown up using is things like born again, I became saved, I experienced new life. Somewhere within the Bible are experiences just like that and somewhere within history are multiple experiences just like this. He opened their eyes 
and they became aware of a story that they had never quite been aware of before. I would suggest that two words are helpful for us in understanding this. There is a difference between information and revelation. There is all the sorts of things that you can learn. You can read, you can study, you can examine all of those different things. You can read stories about Jesus' life. You can read proofs of the fact that it seems like he came back from the dead. Those are all useful, important things to do. And yet it seems like what Jesus suggests, the biblical writer suggests, is this. There is a moment somewhere where all of that information, maybe physically not, but maybe in practice, drops from somewhere here to somewhere here. There is a moment where you come to understand that the story is not just historically true. It's not just that a man lived, taught, and then died and rose again. It's that the man who lived, died, and then rose again dramatically impacts your life and this world around us. It's this moment of these disciples coming to understand that it is not just good that they have their friend back, but that friend's story, that spiritual leader's story, undergirds every single story in this world. This is a moment where they come to see that important point. Because I think up until this point, if you'd asked them what their best case scenario in seeing Jesus again, what their answer might have been is this. If Jesus came back to life, we get to just continue what we were doing, right? We were doing some good stuff. We were traveling. We were teaching people. People were being healed. If Jesus comes back, we get our leader back. We get to take a back seat again, and he gets to do his thing, and we get to support him. But there's this moment where, in maybe a terrifying way, these 11 men and few women start to realize, that's not what you're talking about, is it? Yes, resurrection has happened, but Jesus begins to reveal to, himself, to them, actually, now this involves me taking a step further back. This actually involves me removing myself from the physical sight of the world. And now the story will center, yes, still around me, but now in terms of the practice, in terms of the everyday activity, now the story will be about what you do. Luke is a book about what Jesus did. Acts will become a book about what his followers did as they took his principles, his life, his message, and shared it with the world. This, for these disciples, is a pivot moment, and I would suggest a terrifying one. What does it mean for Jesus not to be there? And what does it mean for him to say, now, now the story sits with you? Because it seems like Jesus has no plan B, right? There is no, if these 11 men and few women don't take the story, I'll come up with another solution. Everything about this story rests on this moment. Will it go anywhere outside of this room? Or will it just stop? This is this wonderful tension point. They need to see him. Yes, they've had this appearance. They have seen. Yes, there's been an interaction. They have touched. But then there's this understanding. It has been revealed. This is the moment where they realize Jesus' story is not just good news for him. It's good news for them. And it's good news for the world. And they begin to realize they have a role to play. Jesus never gets into a huge amount of details about which passages in the Old Testament he believes point to him, but he will say, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Everything about the old stories has been pointing to this story, to this crescendo, to this moment, but now it's on them to go and share. So my question for us is this, after all this has happened, after Jesus has died, risen again, he's sat with his followers, he's shown them that he really is alive, where does he see the story 
going now? How does he see their role? What is he shaping them to do? Because I would suggest that that very thing is probably, in, is probably helpful for us in learning how he sees our role today. Jesus sees this moment where there's this gospel of repentance for forgiveness of sins that will be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Think about the boldness of that. Jerusalem is this tiny little backwater Significant enough that the Romans wanted to invade it, but, but not particularly important in terms of the geopolitical landscape. And in this tiny room where these 11 men and few women have gathered, Jesus is suggesting that the message that has been talked about there will spread from that point to the entire world. He tells them that they will become his heralds is a great word. The Greek word is kariso. And there's, a, there's an element of British politics that maybe we'll, I can share with you that will help you understand this. There's this incredibly archaic role within British politics for this character. His name, unbelievably, is Black Rod. That is his title. I'm not sure why. Oh, actually, I am. He carries a black rod. It's very, <laughs> very intuitive. His one responsibility throughout the year is this. He is to be a herald for the queen. When the queen goes to open parliament, he walks in front of her by a few minutes, he bashes on the door and says, the queen is coming to open parliament. And because parliament is supposed to be free from the queen's authority, they open the door for him. They say, okay, and then they slam it in his face in this act of theatrics. Uh, and then he goes back and does nothing for the rest of the year, sits in his comfortable office, just having a great time on the public funds and all those types of things. He is a herald. He is a proclaimer of someone who is coming. And it seems like Jesus' understanding of one of his followers' roles is this, you are heralds and proclaimers of this message, of this kingdom, and of this king that will return again. Jesus is very comfortable about the fact that the, the, the story will not just stop on this world, but that this king will return again one day to take up his rightful place. He sees them as proclaiming in the same way that he saw himself proclaiming. For those of you with good memories, let's go back to the very start when we started Build a Bigger Table. We talked about how Jesus outlined what he had come to do. In Luke chapter 4, he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. And now he says to these earliest followers, this is what you will be doing. Now you will proclaim. The repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations. The very role Jesus had at the beginning of all this he now says, I now hand to you. You get to go and do this. With one important addition as well. I mentioned to you that there's been these questions lurking behind this text, behind Luke specifically, that have been there from the beginning. Early on in Luke, we're told that this message will not just be for those in the Jewish world, but for those outside as well. Early in Luke, in chapter 2, a man called Simeon in the temple, when Jesus is dedicated, says this about what Jesus' ministry and life will do. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, you have promised, and now you may dismiss your servant in peace. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. There's been this idea that the story will expand to the ultimate degree. 
the story will go everywhere. And yet, as we've watched throughout Luke, Jesus has spent almost 100% of his time with Jewish people. Yes, it's been Jewish people who live on the margins. It's been those that have been discluded. It is a wonderful story. It is a wonderful inclusion. Those that don't belong now find a place to belong. And yet this passage has lurked there from the beginning. Where's the Gentiles? Where are those that are really outside? Is the story as good as it can possibly go? Does it go the entire way? Does it include everybody? And yet Jesus has spent time with Jewish people, Jewish people. Even the occasional interactions with Gentiles have been a little bit controversial. A Gentile woman comes to him and says, "Uh, can you help, can you heal my child? And Jesus says, it's not right for the dogs to receive the food from the children's table. Yes, the story ends positively for her, but there has been this tension throughout the text. Where are those real outsiders? When do they get included? This is the moment where that begins to be resolved. It seems like Luke in his mind has this verse in Isaiah in the back of his mind. It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. There is this moment where that ultimate story will become true. They will be proclaimers that will go to all nations. It will begin in this tiny backwater but it will go everywhere. And as we as a community wrestle with Acts, we'll see the beginnings of just how expensive that story gets. When you look at this idea of mission worldwide, when you look about uh, outreach evangelism, there were conversations about 250 AD that were centered around, what do we do when everyone in the world is a follower of Jesus? The thing was growing so fast, it was so dynamic that it felt like there would be no work left for people to do in just a few short years. And then tragedy, the Christian faith became tied to the Roman Empire. Constantine became the first Christian emperor and he took his soldiers and said, well, I want you to be baptized as followers of Jesus, but I want you to leave your hand and your sword out of the water because your hand and your sword still belong to Rome. Jesus, as it were, could have the rest of you but you still were a soldier of the empire and suddenly it became profitable or even good for your career to join the Christian faith. And things took a dramatic turn downwards, but there was this moment where it was growing so fast that people were like, this thing is going to be worldwide before we know it. That movement, that organic movement began in this room with these people that became these proclaimers, these heralds of this news that was to come. Jesus sees himself as creating this group of proclaimers, of heralds. They will take what he began to do and they will do it everywhere now. Not just to the Jews anymore, but to the whole world. But not just proclaimers, something else as well. Another fascinating word that Jesus uses. You are witnesses of these things. Jesus says, yes, you will proclaim, you will speak, you will go and share this message, but you'll also be witnesses. Now, the the language of witnesses is probably familiar to us a little bit. We think about courtrooms, all those different things, but there's another way that I would like us just for a few moments to think about the idea of being witnesses. It is in the realm of sports. So how many of you have seen the new Space Jam movie? Maybe not many of you. You shouldn't because the real Space Jam has Michael Jordan in it. I'm a child of the 90s. And so Jordan is king. LeBron isn't Jordan. But if you want to go see it, that's fine. It's entirely up to you. But think about LeBron James for a second. We're just going to land on him. Think about his story. 
He comes into the NBA as an 18-year-old. He takes over. He's like a man amongst boys. He's dominating everything. And then think about the language that people used around this person who, let us remind ourselves, is paid money to play a game. Paid money to play a game. This is a poster that was put up in Cleveland during the height of everything. There's LeBron, 23. We are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. What does that statement mean? Think about how else LeBron James is described in the press at this point. He is the chosen one. The chosen one. Think about the religious aspect to that language. And then what do they mean? What do Nike mean? What does the Cleveland Cavaliers mean by we are all witnesses? Do they just mean we have seen LeBron do some stuff? They actually don't. They actually mean buy all of the shoes he wears, buy the gear, watch as many games as you can, tell your friends about it, spread the word, something is happening here. Even in the world outside of church, this idea of being witnesses is more than just seeing something. There is this involvement in this story. And again, this is around a man who plays a game for money. This language is taken straight out of the Bible, and it's maybe a little bit helpful for us in understanding that this is somewhat what Jesus is asking us to do. When it says we are witnesses, it is not simply you have seen Jesus alive when he was dead. It is more than that. It is take this story that is transformative for you and take it into the world around you. Tell others about what you have experienced in a non-physical sense, wear the clothing and buy the shoes, but live this story out and take it with you wherever you go. That explosively growing church that we talked about just a couple of minutes ago, do you know what empowered it? Wasn't great programs, didn't have any buildings, had no money, loads of resources that we would say today are very important, didn't have any of them. What it did have was hundreds and thousands of people that had a specific story about personal transformation and change and said, this story is so profound for me, I long to share it with those around me. This story was empowered almost completely by an organic thing that said, this story means everything. This story has changed me. And I would love to spread that change. I would love to tell of that change. I would love to bear witness to that change. What have you witnessed? How has this story impacted you and I? And what does it look like to share that? The fascinating thing about this word, witness, is the extent to which it demands of us. Let me unpack that a little bit more. The Greek word for witness is martus. It's where we get the word martyr. So many of the people that are sat right now in this room with Jesus a couple of thousand years ago, they would get pushed to the choice. What's more valuable to me, my part in this story, my witness to this story, or my physical life on this earth? Most of the people in this room that we're talking about, they died for this faith. Now, in America, 21st century, is that likely a choice you will be asked to make? I would suggest it probably isn't right now. In other parts of the world, is it still definitely a choice you're asked to make? 100%. It is regularly and often a choice that our brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, make all the time. But there may be other choices that you have to make. 
Maybe they're less difficult. Maybe they're more difficult. I don't know. But there may be something that you have to lay down to bear witness to this story. There may be something. Because one of the interesting things about this Jesus is that he takes second place to no one. I say this somewhat carefully. He does not take second place to your Americanness, to my Britishness. It seems that he has no interest in that. He does not take second place to your ethnicity, to your background. He does not take second place to your political persuasions. Does not say take second place to your sexuality. It seems that Jesus will take second place to nothing and to nobody. His expectation of his heralds and witnesses is that he is the center of everything for them. That is what shapes the story. He is the center. His story undergirds and grounds everything. It seems like the one who laid down his life would soon be best represented by those who live as he lived. On one hand, that included taking his teaching and putting it into practice. It's why we have a big thing outside on a wall that says that we are a group of people living in the way of Jesus with the heart of Jesus but it might extend all the way through to a group of people who would lay down their lives as he laid down his. Ultimately, the word witness, it risks the possibility that you may have to surrender and sacrifice something to do it well. And think about that, how that brings us back full circle to how we've talked about build a bigger table. We've talked about build a bigger table as a series about reaching out for those that are on the margins it may mean that there are some difficult choices for you and I to make about who we let sit at our table, about who we give access to our homes, about who we call our friends and include in parts of our social group. It may mean that there's a push to change some of the ways that we have acted in the world in the past. It may mean that we lay down some career promotions. It means that we, may, may mean that we have to give up some practical things that we thought would bring us a ton of joy. It may mean that somewhere this story costs us something because the central part of the story is it costs Jesus everything. This is the story that he invites us into. And yet we have seen Jesus constantly throughout this series use his table to bring in those in the margins. We have seen him sit as an honored guest and somehow in some kind of transaction, he has become the host and he has welcomed in those that find themselves on the outside. And so when we think about becoming witnesses, yes, it may mean the ultimate of becoming a martyr, but it still means that the table still matters. We get to be part of this movement that takes this story from this upper room hidden away 2,000 years ago, and we get to be part of it when we are heralds, when we are witnesses to what this story means for you and I. In Matthew, Matthew will talk about this, about being going and making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Mark, he'll talk about going into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. But all of them have that sense of, it's go, it's go, it's go. Where will you bear witness? But here's some final good news. The worship band are gonna come back up in a second. There is no expectation that you and I are supposed to do this in our own power and in our own strength. Let's look at how Jesus resolves this passage. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Luke and Acts, as these combined works, are an account of how God has and is 
working in the world. Luke is what Jesus did. Acts will be what his followers did, but they were never left to do it in their own strength and power. And I would suggest that neither are you and I. This is the audacious claim of Jesus about his followers. This is the claim that the spirit inside you is greater than Jesus beside you. Think back to them again just for a second. Jesus has been returned to them against all probability. And there's got to be a longing that he will stay because everything is better when Jesus is there. If only he would stay, we could keep doing all of those things. He would be our champion, we would follow him, life would be good. And yet his message is, I'm going, I'm stepping back. I'm leaving you, not alone. I'm leaving you empowered to continue this story. And the spirit inside you is better than Jesus beside you. You and I have something to do in the world. We are called to be witnesses. How will you be a witness to this story today and beyond? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your incredible story, your life, your resurrection. We think about your followers and this moment of seeing you, of all the questions of what could this be? What could it mean? And yet the actual outworking is challenging. Your resurrection means new life in the future, but it also means a role to play as witnesses today. You tell them that you'll be stepping back. You'll be present, but not physically. They are called to be your witnesses in the world, and we are too. And we do that not in our own power, but in the power of your spirit, your gift. It would be so easy to believe that if you were just here with us in presence, in practice, life would be great and life would be easy. And yet you tell us, the spirit inside us is better than Jesus beside us. Thank you for South. Thank you for the role we get to play as your witnesses. Would you guide us and shape us as we continue to do that? Amen. If God is working in your life through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. You can give online at southfellowship.org slash give or on the South Fellowship Church app. Thanks for listening, South family. Have a great rest of your day.